This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, October 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippians prepare to vote on medical marijuana. Then legislators hold a joint hearing of Medicaid committees to discuss technical amendments to the Medicaid bill. Plus, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation releases its State of Childhood Obesity Report. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippians are sharing their thoughts about legalizing medical marijuana at a town hall event before the November election. At an event in Jackson last night, voters turned out to discuss the benefits and drawbacks of Ballot Initiative 65, which could legalize medical marijuana within the framework of the state constitution, and Alternative Measure 65A, which was introduced by legislators to offer more oversight from state government. Speakers from varying perspectives took to the mic to share their voice. David Singletary supports Initiative 65, the 2019 Independent candidate for governor says he's grown tired of the endless war on drugs. One in 1971, when I was 14 years old, my grandfather shot and killed from prohibition. He's an alcohol officer back in 1931. My mother had lost her father at six. He's a casualty of this thing we call a war on drugs. Been going on over 100 years. Law enforcement still getting killed for it. Process is flawed, people. You're just puppets on a string for your national parties. This war's been going on over 100 years, people. Medical marijuana is just the tip of the iceberg with this war. You've got whole industries that depend on this war on drugs. Judges, lawyers, bail bondsmen. I mean, that's a multi-trillion dollar industry in itself, just keeping this war up. How many trillions of dollars have we wasted on this war over a 100 years? Are we any better off? Have we reached the goal that was set in this war on drugs? Are we ever going to reach this war goal? Are we going to still fight and feud with each other a 100 years from now over it? Do you want to settle it? Or is your job dependent upon it? So the only thing I'm left to do is just... Uh, sponsor recreational cannabis for the rest of my life while I'm here every year. Moderation and toleration. Portugal and Switzerland. Overdose deaths are down. They got complete legalized drugs. There is a different approach. There is a new method. 65A is highly restrictive. And as Ms. Grantham said, we've been waiting on the legislators in Mississippi 20-something years. So, There's no guarantee the legislators are going to do it that it'll ever make it out of committee again. War on drugs doesn't work. It's been enforced over 100 years. We got to do away with the zero tolerance, people. That's, that's That's what the whole problem is, zero tolerance. 
Zero tolerance doesn't work. We need to adopt a policy of moderation and toleration and quit throwing poor people in jail in a poverty-stricken state because we got jails filled to the capacity that we cannot keep up. David Singletary ran for governor as an independent in 2019. Some voters are open to the idea of medical marijuana, but do not approve of the language of Initiative 65. Clark Wise of Madison says he supports 65A because it puts the issue in the hands of lawmakers. You know, I first, when I read the proposed text of this constitutional amendment, there are a lot of concerning elements in that text. Um, When you're looking at contracts, when you're conducting business, it's not just the bottom line of that contract you sign, it's the terms. And I want you all to take a moment and read those pages and those terms that we agree to as Mississippi citizens if 65 were to pass. First off, not one single penny goes to the actual improvement of our state. Most people, when I talk to them in other states where they've had similar programs enacted, they say, this is great, we have this new stream of revenue, our schools have never been better. Not the case under Initiative 65. Not one penny goes to the improvement of roads, bridges, schools, none of that. All of it goes right back into the program. The second thing I, I heard tonight was about God being in the details. And I'm, I guess I'm, I'm pleased to hear that because under this program, it's going 500 feet next to your churches, your schools, your parks, playgrounds, things like that. 500 feet. We have stricter regulations for liquor stores than we're going to put in place for a federally illicit substance. I want you all to think about that. People talk about this being self-funded. The entire program begins with a $2.5 million loan from everybody in this room. comes out of the rainy day fund. So we have teacher pay raises that we want to pass in the legislature. We can't do it. We can't pull that from the rainy day fund. But the marijuana industry wants this special treatment, and $2.5 million comes out of that rainy day fund to start it right off the bat. Last thing I'll say is I've heard people say tonight, oh, there have been all these bills introduced that would, you know, create this program, and they failed. And I think it's all too fitting tonight that we're sitting here in the two museums, the place where we retired our state flag, where we changed it. And there's a reason why I'm standing up here, and there's only an American flag and not that 1894 flag behind me. It's because the legislature saw fit to act at the appropriate time. And if the poll numbers are as strong as the proponents say, I would encourage us to engage in the democratic process and work through the legislature. So I would encourage you to vote against 65 and for 65A. Clark Wise is a resident of Madison. For more on the medical marijuana debate, join MPB News for a special at issue. We'll speak with representatives of both ballot initiatives and take your questions. That's tonight at 7 on MPB Television, MPB Radio, and mpbonline.org. Coming up, legislators hold a joint hearing of Medicaid committees to discuss technical amendments to the Medicaid bill. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Mississippi lawmakers are holding hearings with medical providers to decide how Medicaid should be operated. Medicaid provides health care for more than 700,000 low-income Mississippians, and lawmakers want to hear concerns from mental and health care providers as they decide what, if any, changes should be made to the program. Democratic Senator David Blunt of Jackson is on the Medicaid committee. He explains the technical amendment hearings with our Desiree Frazier. The Medicaid tech bill is a bill that uh, comes up from time to time in the legislature where the Medicaid program requires new uh, authorization by the legislature to continue. Uh, And so it's an opportunity for the legislature to look at any of the issues involving the Medicaid program, uh, patients, providers, hospitals, doctors, anything about Medicaid, uh, to come before the legislature again before the program is reauthorized. And that, that will happen at the close of the 2021 legislative session. What stood out to you about today's hearing? Obviously, the number one issue in Mississippi is the need to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. We have about 300,000 people in this state. That's one-tenth of the population of the state. Uh, most of those people are working, and but they don't have health insurance. And if Mississippi would join uh, more than 35 other states in this country that have already expanded Medicaid, we could provide health insurance to 300,000 people and we could say to the hospitals and doctors that treat these people that you will be paid for treating these patients. Right now, uh, all of our hospitals and doctors are losing money providing health care to people who don't have insurance. And we need to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act to, to help not only those patients, but the people who take care of them. One of the issues that, well, two things that kept coming up was the 5% assessment. What is that? Uh, that has to do with uh, the uh, re- essentially reducing the amount that providers are paid. So uh, when the state government has to make budget cuts, uh, sometimes those cuts come uh, out of the money that is paid to providers, hospitals, doctors uh, that treat patients. So uh, a lot of these folks who are providers just want to be paid uh, for the full rate without experiencing a reduction. And there was a lot of concern about managed care uh, operators that they're yes. not paying or? Yes. Uh, that, that, there are three managed care companies in the state. Uh, they are paid uh, a lot of money by the state to try to control cost. Uh, and obviously we want to be uh, careful about cost. But the question that the legislature will discuss uh, as the Medicaid bill Uh, continues to be studied is whether these managed care organizations are operating in the best interest of the state of Mississippi and of the patients of Mississippi. Uh, And so we're just beginning that discussion right now. And one thing, there was an ambulance association that said that they didn't want more money from the legislature, but they wanted a bill that would allow them to seek more federal money. Does, Does that sound like an option you might go for? Uh, I think at this point, you know, we're just gathering information. I think it's certainly worth considering. Uh, but, you know, the legislative session uh, for this year just ended a couple of weeks ago, and the new session uh, won't begin until January. So this is these meetings, the Medicaid meeting today and the, and the others that will be follow over the next few months are the very preliminary meetings that, that lay the groundwork for the 2021 session. 
And let me just ask you this. In terms, you want to expand the Affordable Care Act. Would that help with the Department of Justice lawsuit? Uh, I think it can because there are services that are currently being provided uh, by the Department of Mental Health that are paid for with 100 percent federal dollars or excuse me, with 100 percent state dollars. And if we were able to put some of those patients on Medicaid, then the state would only pay for roughly 20 percent of that cost and the federal government would pay for 80 percent because those patients who are now not covered by insurance would be covered by Medicaid. The, the lawsuit involving the Justice Department and, and mental health services in the state is a lot more complex than that. And there are a lot of different factors involved. But getting more people health insurance would help with everything. Senator, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you, Desiree. Medicaid received $8.6 million in funding from the state this fiscal year. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation releases its State of Childhood Obesity Report. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. I'm 72 years old, and I've never had a trace of OCD behavior. But starting about three years ago, I would find myself counting, not meaningful counting and not out loud. It was just like going on in my brain. And then I would become aware of it. Like I'm uh, walking outside and I'm counting one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Uh, Or I'm putting ice cubes in a glass and I'm counting how many cubes I put in mentally. Actually, that is a common behavior that some people have. And even if you're, you know, it is a little unusual to go your whole life and not have any problems until around that time. But it it can go along with obsessive-compulsive type behaviors. It can also be associated with other things. A lot of people have concomitant depression or anxiety that's overlaying that. Sometimes it can be triggered by something that happened. Sometimes it doesn't. It can be sort of a generalized anxiety uh, symptom. I, I do think probably by what you told me that this can be treatable. I would start off with a psychologist. They'll probably delve into like exactly what you're thinking and when it occurs. They may be able to give you some tools so it's not as intrusive. That's the part where, you know, all of us do sort of things like that. But uh, it's when it becomes intrusive with the normal daily activities. So there are some medications that you can take that help with this. But honestly, I would start with just a psychologist who's trained in this area to see if there's some things that they can do to help you out. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. 
Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Slowly, we started, you know, picking these turtles up and saving them. I'll stop traffic, grab one out of the road. And then our friends found out, and our vet would call us. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We are now a full-fledged, nonprofit turtle rescue. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Roughly one in seven U.S. youth ages 10 to 17 have obesity, according to the newest available data. The data are included in a new report from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, State of Childhood Obesity, Prioritizing Children's Health During the Pandemic. As experts link obesity to increased risk for severe COVID-19 symptoms, the report promotes changes to prioritize children's health and improve equity in response to the pandemic and throughout recovery. Jamie Bissell is a senior program officer with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. When you look at um, specifically the race in Mississippi, um, Mississippi, you know, is the second highest rate at 22.3 percent, again, for kids between the ages of 10 and 17. Uh, How does that compare to, well, actually, this data is from 2018, 2019. Is that correct? Exactly. So this data is combined to reflect both those years. And the reason this report is coming out now is because it includes the coronavirus aspect. So it's taking that data and applying it. it, Exactly. So it's actually important, though, to note that the data from 2018 and 2019 don't yet reflect any direct impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic. That being said, you know, the report was issued with absolutely, you know, the connections around both public health crises. Um, And so there's a lot of conversation around COVID in the report, although the data doesn't at this point, it's too early to reflect any direct impacts. There's certainly a lot of hypotheses being made by the experts around the impact of the COVID pandemic on childhood obesity prevalence rates, but it's going to take some time before we actually can see that and then, um, you know, attribute it. We know that people who are obese are at a higher risk for complications from Mm COVID-19. Is that true for children as well? Because we know that it doesn't affect children or or what we know now, it doesn't affect children as seriously as adults. So... You know, black and Latino kids and parents are at greater risk from the pandemic than white kids and parents. We know that. And they're more likely to suffer from severe symptoms if they do get sick. And in fact, there's actually some new data that also that also shows that even amongst children, death rates from COVID-19 are higher for black and Latino youth than they are for for white youth. Um, So, again, you know, the pandemic has hit hardest in communities of color. It's disproportionately affecting families with lower incomes. And broadly speaking, it's deepened already existing health inequities. And that's true for kids as well as for adults. This would be anecdotal, of course. But are there any data that shows that children who have been kept inside because of the pandemic uh, are more inactive and perhaps eating more, yeah. and that is increasing the propensity for obesity? 
you bet. So I think that, again, it's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there that, you know, kids are not have not been able to get outside with the school closures, um, you know, and it being more challenging to access, you know, meals, specifically school meals. So I think that there is very much, you know, hypotheses around the impact that this is going to have on childhood obesity rates in the future. We're still, again, too early to sort of have the the science that's pointing to that. But I think that um, that is a absolutely, you know, likely to be happening. And certainly, you know, anecdotal evidence that we're hearing from from parents and kids that, you know, everybody is more sedentary and um, probably, you know, not necessarily eating the best. What are some recommendations for state government or the federal government to Mm -hmm. do that can stem the tide here? So broadly, we're really aiming to push for strengthening and modernizing of our flagship federal nutrition programs. So those are programs like the SNAP program, like WIC, like school meals and other policies so that every family can access and afford healthy foods. More specifically, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is calling for an increase in the maximum SNAP benefit level by at least 15% during the economic downturn. And we're also calling for changes that would essentially expand eligibility in the WIC program. So as an example of that, um, today, kids up to the age of five are eligible for WIC. That actually um, puts forward a potential gap in um, healthy food from the time a child is eligible for WIC until the time that that child may be eligible for school meals. And so we believe if we could extend the eligibility up to age six, then we would essentially be closing that gap, um, you know, in terms of when they're able to participate in the school meals program. So, you know, there's um, a handful of policies that are uh, within the report that have proven health benefits and that would, you know, all be incredibly helpful in both responding to the pandemic and then also more broadly in helping kids grow up healthy. Has any of the CARES Act money gone specifically to food? It has. Okay. It has. So, um, you know, as an example, um, the uh, the initial COVID nineteen relief package have been helpful, and you know the con- and Congress and the administration have recently made some shifts to extend some of the flexibilities, if you will, or benefits within the food programs. As an example, schools are now able to serve free meals to all students throughout this entire school year. So from twenty 2020 twenty to t- 2021. Um, in addition, waivers that have been put in place for WIC have are staying in place to help WIC offices serve families in ways that are safe for them and safe for the staff. So, you know, a lot more that's able to um, be done through uh, remote sort of virtual visits and virtual enrollment. Um, and again, you know, we Congress should pass another relief package that, you know, we hope would boost unemployment insurance to to help provide economic stability for families. So, you know, a lot more needs to be done. There's certainly um, been good things that have been done as well already, but way more needs to be done. As you said, the data for childhood obesity comes from 2018, 2019. The next report comes in 2021. 
Right. So the next report will issue our, you know, annual report, but the new data from National Survey of Children's Health, and I'll have to double check on this, but I believe then would be covering 2020, 2021. So it'll, there's always a pretty significant lag time in terms of the time that the data is collected to actually the time that it takes to analyze the data and then report on the data. So there's a, you know, a a natural time delay. But it'll certainly be very interesting to see what that data shows during this pandemic. For sure. Jamie Bissell is the Senior Program Officer for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Stay well. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.